Daring Games. Welcome to the Daring Games podcast. I'm Sarah, a climber, a feminist, and I love women's history. I especially love courageous outdoor women who challenge the view that women were not cut out for feats of athleticism and skill, and I'm here to share their stories with you. Hi everyone. So finally, I've managed to record this podcast. It's taken me a bit longer than I thought. I've been doing a lot of research, doing a lot of reading up, and hopefully this will be as interesting to you as it was for me. So in this first episode, I'm going to talk about the pioneers of early women's mountaineering. So the women who smashed through the rock ceiling to claim their first ascents and pave the way for the women that would come after them. Only a mere 200 years ago, it was thought that women lacked the robustness and skill to do anything other than a gentle amble in the countryside. Men were the ones that scaled the peaks while their wives stayed at home with the children. I hate to say it, but this narrative is still portrayed in a lot of modern outdoor films and it's always irritated me. Man goes off to risk his life for some sense of personal fulfilment. Woman stays at home with the babies worrying he won't come back. That's what's expected in films of these rugged mountaineers. That's the trope. And back in the early 1800s, things weren't much different. Women hadn't yet made their mark on the mountaineering world, so things were about to change. Mountains have been admired and worshipped for hundreds if not thousands of years. There were a few records of early summiteers, but the era when mountain climbing and alpinism itself really took off was the late 1700s and early 1800s. It is said this began with the first successful ascent of Mont Blanc. For those who don't know, this is the tallest mountain in the whole of the Alps, the highest and most extensive mountain range system in Europe, stretching approximately 1,200 kilometres, which is about 750 miles, across eight alpine countries, and Mont Blanc is on the border between France and Italy. It is also the tallest mountain in Europe, after Mount Elbrus in Russia. Yes, that is still classed as Europe. It was finally summited in 1786, and this began an onslaught of ascents of the other alpine peaks by teams of burly men in tweed and jaunty hats. Around the same time that mountaineering had started, walking for pleasure was becoming a favoured pastime of the middle-class gentlefolk. Walking before that was a laborious chore, usually for the sole purpose of getting from one place to another, and long-distance travel on foot was generally something only poor people did. Those with money could travel by horse or coach, and the roads were notoriously dangerous and of poor quality. However, once the roads improved, some started walking for the joy of it. William Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy were two of the first to start talking about walking and making it more of a thing. Dorothy wrote about their escapades in the Lake District in the 1790s, walking miles through the landscape purely for the delight of the experience. Soon walking tours began to be popular in our national parks as well as the Alps. People could come and escape the dirt and pollution of the city and breathe in the fresh alpine air, as well as admire the mountains and glaciers that were abundant around them. I was interested to discover that initially walking for the pure enjoyment of it was a women's pastime. Yay ladies! Many of the richer lady folk had little else to do with their time other than promenade around their gardens, gossip and sew. I like to think they discovered the joy of walking in the landscape before men did, finding a freedom from the constraints of societal pressures as well as a sense of independence that walking can bring. After a lot of digging, the first supposed recorded descent of a large peak by women that I could find was by the Parminter sisters and their cousin, who apparently summited Mont Bouet in 1786. Jane Parminter and her sister Elizabeth and her cousin Mary, all originally from Devon, were on a tour of Europe and are reported to have climbed the 3,096 metre peak together with the aid of a guide. I read a bit more about these women out of interest of why they may have decided to do this, 
And as it turned out, Jane and Mary were the founders of the unique A La Ronde at Exmouth, a 16-sided house stuffed full of their mementos from their grand tour of Europe, and much more. When Mary died in 1849, after Jane who died in 1811, her will stipulated that the house should only be lived in by her unmarried female relatives. In it she named her cousins and nieces in sequence, together with the requirement that they live at the property, and that if they married, the inheritance would pass to the next on the list. She wanted to perpetrate the independence of women in a period of time where feminism wasn't a thing yet, which is just amazing. I certainly feel this is why Jane and Mary were so keen on getting up a 3,000 metre mountain. They lived their lives as fiercely independent and headstrong women, sure of themselves and their decisions. Some sources have proclaimed the Parminters to be the first women to summit a peak over 3,000 metres, yet some of the other things I've read have said they didn't summit it at all, so it's anyone's guess. Since then, Montbouwe has been known locally, however, as Mont Blanc des Dames, Ladies Mont Blanc, I've probably pronounced that completely wrong, sorry French people, which grates on me, the fact that they've called it Ladies Mont Blanc, because that implies that ladies, clearly unable to go up Mont Blanc itself, can have an alternative, easier option for their feeble bodies. But no fear, only a mere decade or two later, one of us feeble-bodied managed to crack the big one. As much as I would love to tell you the first recorded woman who summited Mont Blanc became a hardcore alpinist who wowed the public with her athletic prowess in the years after, that wasn't the case at all. Marie Paradis was a poor maidservant from Chamonix who thought the climb would be a good way to publicise her souvenir shop. She was a good strong walker, but no mountaineer, yet she managed to summit, with the help of her friends, a group of men who accompanied her and had convinced her to do it. They promised her fame and fortune, and as a poor woman with a child to support, she clearly saw the benefit of completing the challenge. Like many women, she lacked confidence in her abilities, but the men that guided her assured her they would carry her if she struggled. So at age 30, on the 14th of July 1808, she reached the summit of Mont Blanc, and cemented her name in the history books. You'd think so, anyway. Actually, many feel that it wasn't a true summit, as she was carried a lot of the way. On the summit, she was in such poor condition that she had difficulty breathing, was unable to speak, and couldn't see. Exhausted and quite undone by her efforts, she begged her companions to throw her into the nearest crevasse to end her misery. It is said she did make a lot of money out of the ascent, but apparently never climbed another mountain again. The first true female mountaineer was said to be Henriette de Vangeville. Again, probably pronounced that completely wrong. In the 1830s, walking tours were now a huge tourist attraction and the Alps teemed with people in the summertime. Women and men both trekked on the forested slopes of the Alps, but women were rarely seen on any of the higher peaks, particularly Mont Blanc. No woman had repeated Paradis's climb. In comes Henriette, a single woman in her 40s, living in Geneva and admiring the majestic zenith from afar. She had a rather odd attachment to the mountain, however, proclaiming, My heart beat furiously, my breathing was impeded, and deep sighs burst from my breast, and I was late for my wedding, my marriage, for the delicious hour when I could lie on his summit. Oh, when will it come? Well... Some have commented that she had such a romantic attachment to the peak because she was unmarried and childless, so she had nothing else to love, which does her a massive disservice. Who hasn't felt that passion for a summit and had that obsession to complete a challenge? She just had a rather unique way of describing it. If you delve into her past, you discover that actually she survived quite a violent and troubled childhood. Her father was imprisoned and her grandfather was sent to the guillotine, so it's no surprise she turned to the landscape to soothe her soul. 
Her goal was to complete a hard challenge for the satisfaction rather than the glory, or as she stated, the spiritual well-being that would follow. I certainly get that after I've climbed a good hill. She finally decided that in 1838 it was time to conquer her beloved Mont Blanc. She was already a keen mountain climber, having trained on some of the lesser peaks of the Chamonix Valley without any issues at all. She returned home to Geneva to declare proudly her intentions. Unfortunately, the news wasn't received well by her friends, family and peers. When questioned as to why on earth she wanted to do anything so ridiculous, she replied, because that is where I find my particular pleasure and happiness. I'm sure we can all sympathise with their feelings there. When pressed why Mont Blanc specifically, she stated, I am among those who prefer the grandeur of natural landscapes to the sweetest and most charming views imaginable, and that is why I chose Mont Blanc. I've always said I love big nature, and I think that's a much more eloquent way of saying it. There was very little support available to her from her family and friends. She even said her doctor tried to talk her out of it. Yet this didn't put her off or damage her resolve. She pushed ahead with her plans as determined as ever, ignoring all the naysayers warning her off. She set about assembling her summit team, as she couldn't do the climb without guides and porters. Back then it was a lot more of an expedition than it is now. She hired six guides, the most experienced of which had summited Mont Blanc nine times, and a team of porters to carry their gear and food. It was happening. The consensus from the general public, unfortunately, was again overwhelmingly negative. Most assumed she'd turn back, fall down a crevasse, or even die. Charming. However, a large crowd still turned up to see them off. Henriette said she was filled with uncontrollable joy as she set off to make a name for herself. Upon reaching the first crevasse, her guides made her tie a rope around her waist while she crossed in case she fell in. Not really recommended in today's crevasse rescue techniques. <laughs> However, once she saw the men leaping across on their own, she insisted she would do the same, and the guides realised there was no use arguing with her. They said, she goes as well as we do and fears nothing. I love this woman. They got to the first camp at 10,000 feet and set up, ready for an early start but they were not alone up there. Soon Henriette was joined by a Polish nobleman for supper and an English group with a dog, apparently the first to have submitted Mont Blanc. Merriment was had until all turned in for the night. Henriette tried to sleep, but she couldn't. So instead she peered out of her tent and wondered at the crisp still night full of moonlit mountains, completely mesmerised. The team rose at 2am, a classic alpine star, and Henriette ate her breakfast of cooked prunes and soup can't say that sounds particularly appetising. She was keen to get going before any of the other parties at the camp, but her guide assured her that there was no rush, it was better to take it slowly. Off they went, and soon it was becoming clear that some of the group were struggling, affected by altitude sickness. Henriette, however, was feeling fine, and once past 13,000 feet, the end was in sight. She suggested those unwell should wait whilst the rest of the party continued, but the men refused as they could not be seen to be bested by a woman. They soldiered on up an icy staircase to the snowfield of the summit plateau. Unfortunately, Henriette started to struggle now. After 12 solid hours of climbing in snow and ice at altitude, she began to slow and apparently fell asleep. The guides had to keep poking her to wake her up. She refused to be carried and refused to give up. And that stubborn spirit of hers is the reason she finally got to the summit and completed her goal. Once back in Chamonix, she was greeted like a queen, which she enjoyed, but with some element of bemusement. Suppose an avalanche had swept me away, she said. 
Those who now heap praises on me would not have shed a tear, and the general opinion would have been summed in one declaration. The foolish woman, her desire for fame has cost her dear. Amusingly, Marie Paradis herself, now 60 years old, turned up at Henriette's hotel room the next day. They embraced, and Henriette declared that they were sisters in Mont Blanc. She continued to climb for another 25 years after her famous ascent of Mont Blanc, which included another ascent of Mont Blanc, and she made her last mountaineering trip at the age of 65. So I'm just going to talk a little bit now at the end just about the clothing that women used to wear in early mountaineering times. Due to the modesty and social constrictions of the time, many women who climbed had to climb in completely inappropriate attire for even walking and were therefore further hindered in their fight for recognition. A woman wearing anything more practical like trousers at that time was considered outrageous and they could even have been arrested for it, so they were forced to wear big heavy woolen dresses of many layers, which would have dragged in the snow and been heavier when wet, so not the easiest thing to walk in. When Henriette summited Mont Blanc, she was wearing an outfit which consisted of a man's shirt, six layers of wool, a dress over fleece-lined trousers, including petticoats, a cloak and a boat. This outfit weighed a total of 14 pounds. There were a few who ploughed ahead, however, not caring much about their reputations, caring only for the practicality and getting that summit. One of the preferred options were bloomers, made famous by Amelia Bloomer through her promotion of the style in her forward-thinking women's newspaper, The Lily. In the 1850s, Bloomer promoted a change in dress standards for women that would be less restrictive in regular activities, stating, The costume of women should be suited to her wants and necessities. She began wearing the new look, which combined knee-length skirts with loose pantaloons that bunched at the ankle, as did many women, particularly suffragists. The early lady mountaineers found that bloomers were much more practical, and some of them adopted them for their outdoor pursuits. Unfortunately, they were not seen as proper by the general population. In 1890, Faye Fuller wore bloomers on her first female ascent of Mount Rainer, and was widely criticised for being immodest for it. But those really pushing the boat out were the ones that dared to wear actual trousers. Like Annie Smith Peck, who climbed the Matterhorn in 1895 wearing, yes, a pair of trousers. Unfortunately, she didn't get the recognition she deserved for climbing one of the most technical routes of the time, as the press were too busy debating whether or not she should be arrested for wearing trousers. Well, that's the end of my podcast. I'm sorry it's taken so long for me to get this out, but life gets in the way. I don't think I'm going to be able to get these out every week, <laughs> not when I want to do all the research that I want to do, so I'm going to try and do one at least once a month. If you have any ideas, anyone that you think, oh, I would love to know more about her, please let me know. Um, I have a Facebook page, I have Twitter, at Daring Dames, just look me up, hopefully you should be able to find me and you can send me a message on there. Thank you so much for downloading this and I really hope you enjoyed it and I really enjoyed making it. Thank you very much. Bye.